Welcome, good afternoon, to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are, as always, pleased that you could join us. And um, we are going to be uh, sharing with you the link if you wish to join the live stream. There it is on, on screen and uh, it's in the chat as well. Today, we're going to be exploring in some greater depth the relationship between various egos that we all live with to one degree or another. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the relationship between lust and fear. Now, esoterically, or mytholo mythologically, or how else you, you wish to uh, understand it, perhaps traditionally is a be uh, better way to put it, Lilith, who was the first um, wife of Adam, is said to be the mother of all demons. She's said to be a queen of hell itself. And Lilith, the demon, has a husband, Asmodeus. And in many cases, Asmodeus is also related with lust, because Lilith is related to lust. Desire. And desire being the chief characteristic of the inversion of the feminine force. Lilith is embodied in what's known as the Whore of Babylon, that force, that entity, which brings about the downfall of the civilization and the fall of the Tower of Babel. It is desire, and desire is the mother of all egos. But there are different characteristics of desire. 
there's the desire of I want, which we can characterize as craving. But then there's the inverse of that. It's the other side of the same coin. We call it aversion. In simple terms, what we don't want. Now, in our own experience of lust, we know that lust is all about what we want, what we desire, what we lust for, what we lust after. I want to have that. Very rarely do we think of lust as an aversion. I don't want that. Where we are repelled. Now, from an aesthetic point of view or from a sexual point of view, we can be repelled by someone, by their appearance, by their behavior, by the energy that they exude. We can find them repellent or repulsive. But if we feel into that, it's not exactly lust at the heart of that. Lust may be involved insofar as that which is repellent to us and repulsive to us does not fit the mold of that which is attractive or that which is desirous. But it is really hard to pin this one on lust. I don't want that. So what is it? And what we discover, if you look into the medieval mystics, and when you look into many of the different texts and tomes discussing what the deadly sins are and the seven deadly sins. Lust is in there, but but in many lists, fear is absent. Now, just for a moment, let's step back and take a, a secular materialist scientific stance and recognize that all of the egos work for mechanical nature. All of the egos as mechanical programs, mechanical algorithms that govern animals and plants even for that matter and their behaviors. Lust, lust's primary function in mechanical nature is survival. Procreation among animals, this is the driving force by which species endure, that they survive and they persist survive and persist, endure, live. 
that survival of the species, if we go to social animals, animals who uh, exist and coexist in packs or prides or hives or gaggles or what have you, murders, that's a, like a murder of crows, flocks of particular birds, right? Gaggles of geese. We, we have many, many different words describing many, many different types of animals who, whose survival depends on some kind of uh, cooperative or, or uh, mutual symbiosis, some, some sort of harmonic uh, collective existence. And where that collective existence is truly social, for example, a pack of wolves or a pride of lions or a, a troop of uh, primates, there is a social order which is maintained and that social order, that dominance hierarchy exists For, among other things, the establishment of mating rights and orders. The survival of the troop, the survival of the pack, the survival of the pride is dependent upon having the alpha male, the strongest, the smartest, the boldest, the, more the most cunning, the one with the greatest constitution, to have first mating rights in the social order. Why? To, to ensure the strongest, smartest, most clever, most cunning offspring. To ensure this, the best gene pool. And long after that alpha is gone and over the hill and been replaced, his ongoing survival and the survival of his entire extended family is going to depend on the proliferation of those genes and the, the execution of the algorithm, of the program known as lust, of procreation. This is lust's purpose on the level of mechanical nature. And so it is the well-being, the stability, solidity, the strength and survivability of the pack, of the pride, of the collective depends entirely upon, upon procreation and therefore on the function of lust. Again, this is on the level of mechanical nature. Now, in some way, shape, or form, all of the egos, all of the programs, all of the algorithms that deal with survival and survivability in some way encapsulate this aspect of lust to some degree. So for example, gluttony, 
the desire to eat. This is, again, is entirely related to survivability. And like lust, gluttony is all about gaining something, taking something in, receiving something, becoming full with something. But then we come to what is as powerful as any desire to take something in in order to survive. And that is the desire to repel, to oppose, to block, to protect from. To force something away. That desire, that aversion, which is wholly committed and wholly intended and purposeful for one reason and one reason alone. Survival. That ego, that program, that algorithm on the level of mechanical nature, is fear. And fear expresses itself, as people typically understand it, as fight or flight. Fear is very um, active in that sense and very reactive in that sense. And that's typically how most people think about, you know, they talk about the fight or flight instinct. That's how most people understand um, the mechanism of fear. We were meditating on all of this. And as we were meditating on all of this, we realized that both lust and fear have a masculine aspect and a feminine aspect. But one is more feminine than the other, and one is more masculine than the other. And then we, out of, we just said, well, what might be the symbolic or allegorical representation of this? And sure enough, we came across the symbols of Lilith and Asmodeus. And without doing any sort of intellectual research or reading or anything about it, other than the fact that Lilith is the mother of all demons, she was the wife of Adam, but the queen of hell and the mother of all demons, well, that's lust. But Asmodeus is also called lust in many ways, in, by, by many places, by, by many traditions. But Asmodeus is the husband of Lilith. 
fear and lust are two sides of the same coin. In the same way that pride and shame are two sides of the same coin. Because there is no other ego which is so powerful a force and so monumental a driving motivator inside of us than fear. And there is no algorithm, there's no process that is that drives animals in mechanical nature more than fear. Because fear is how they survive. And the relationship between the dominance hierarchy and the right to procreate is so intimately interwoven and interconnected that you end up with a strict dominance hierarchy in which the alpha controls and has dominance over the pack. And it is that dominance that affords him first right of refusal in terms of choosing mates. We have said before that the desire to control and the desire to dominate was fear. The desire to be in control of outcomes. We all know, especially in this day and age, that there is an entire, uh, what shall we call it, school of uh, sexual practice perhaps is how else we call it we don't we, we don't want to call it a fetish necessarily but there's snm and there's bondage and there's you know domination and submission that's snm well no no snm is sadomasochism dominance and submission there's an entire uh school of sexuality in which the titillation comes from dominant partners seeking out submissive partners. So they can play out this power fantasy, this, this power dynamic. And without the, the, the dom, the dominant one, unless they feel dominant, they, they, can't, they can't get it up. They, they are not, they can't get aroused. They're cold and they'll remain cold unless they can find themselves uh, a sub, in, to use their parlance, a submissive. And then their titular arousal is stimulated. Then lust comes alive for them. 
the same way in the reverse for the submissive. But the submissive wants to be dominated. They want to be taken, as it were. They want to be, not in a uh, a harsh way or a uh, or a uh, uh, sadistic, masochistic way. That's another school of sexual degeneration. That's another school of fetishize, uh, fetishization, if that's even a word. Fetishizing, it must be, because fetishizing is a word. This intimate relationship between Lilith and Asmodeus, between lust and fear, is worthwhile for us all to meditate on and observe in our lives because we can learn much about ourselves. We can learn much about what is holding us back, what is still remains as an obstacle to us on the path. Lust may be the mother of all egos, the whore of Babylon, but we say it now and we, we uh, proclaim it thus, that whore has a pimp. If, if, if lust is the mother of all egos, then fear is their father. Both lust and fear, intimately related to survival. Now, so what? What does it matter? What can we possibly learn or benefit, or how do we apply this in any meaningful way? There are multiple different ways, but before we get into that, let's delve deeper into the metaphysical scientific mechanics of these aspects of lust and fear. We mentioned how both have masculine and feminine qualities to them. But one is more masculine, one is more feminine. They are two halves of the same coin, so there's a lot of overlap. From this point forward, let us let us comprehend as if there is an inverted law of creation at play here, and that we have a feminine force, Lilith, lust. Why? Because that is the desire to procreate. And procreation is impossible without the feminine force, the receptive force, which receives the seed and nurtures and grows the seed in its womb. It is the very nature of the feminine force. That desire, and the word itself, remember, we began 
this entire discourse with the objective observation that desire, craving, is the desire to receive, to take, to take, and to bring into oneself something. I want to have that. That is what I have. It's over there. I want it here. This is a feminine force, a receptive force. That's why lust is feminine, lilif. But the other force, aversion, to push away, to push away is to thrust, is to drive. It's an outward motion. That is a masculine force. Aversion is masculine. When these two forces combine and unite, they give rise, they give birth to all of the other egos, which are some version of being filled up or being emptied out of. To taking and receiving or giving, thrusting. imposing, i.e. dominance and control. And again, this is reflected in the fight-or-flight instinct aspect of fear. But we know, because we've, dis we've discussed it before, there are two more aspects of fear that people never think about. There's fight, there's flight, those are masculine. But then there's, excuse me, freeze and fawn. To be paralyzed with fear, to be dominated by fear itself, to be dominated by whatever is the object of the fear, like a deer in headlights who becomes fascinated who becomes completely mesmerized and paralyzed with fear. This is to freeze. And then the fourth and perhaps the most insidious of all expressions of fear, to fawn, where the threat is so pervasive and so strong and so dominant that the subject becomes enamored by the threat. The subject has no choice but to give themselves, throw themselves at the feet of that dominance and submit to it. This is an inversion of humility. This is, this is a dark, twisted corruption of what it means to be humble and what it means to surrender 
to one's higher self. This is the inversion of that. To fawn. To fawn is to, is to lavish your oppressor with, with all of your gifts and all of your energy and all of your love, essentially love. This, in terms of humans, we have a word for this. There's a phenomenon for this. It's called the Helsinki Syndrome. This, it comes from that famous case study where the, uh, these terrorists took a bunch of hostages, and then by the end of it, the hostages f- formed lasting bonds and lasting relationships with their, with their, uh, with their kidnappers. The people who are very who are uh, have take took away their freedom or threatening their lives became such uh, objects of of admiration and adoration that their victims began fawning over them. I'm sorry. Yes, you know what? You're right. You're right. It wasn't Helsinki syndrome. It was Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> We are terrible with names. We've said it before. We'll say it again. We always forget them and we'll always get them mixed up. Thank you, Safit, for that correction. It's Stockholm Syndrome. It was Stockholm, Sweden. We were thinking about it, say, Helsinki. We, as soon as we said it, we said, that doesn't sound right, but we don't know what the right one is. So we're waiting for someone to, uh, to correct us. So we have that. We know that that's real. We know that that even among humans is real. <laughs> Safit says, "Well, we were close. You know what? We're not. We're not the. We're not. We're. We're certain we're not the first person to get uh, uh, Helsinki and uh, and Stockholm uh, mixed up. <laughs> Just like people get Sweden and Norway mixed up, and that whole uh, that whole Nordic uh, region to uh, to those who are not from there is a, is a bit of a blur." Um. <clears throat> So coming back to it again, lust and fear. There's there's clearly masculine and feminine expressions of each. There's feminine expressions of fear and there's masculine expressions of lust and vice versa. And this, knowing this, being able to observe this can help us comprehend the nature of the ego that we're observing working in us. The We mentioned how uh, in the write-up for today's talk, Master Samael described how fear was one of the greatest egos he, he had to overcome. And often, when people enter into the studies of Gnosis, they focus on lust a lot. Because lust is one of those, obviously, very, very, very difficult egos to overcome, of course. Not just because we have likely become very habituated to it, and because we are surrounded and inundated by it, and because it is constantly being stimulated in the uh, culture of society we live in today, 
and it is celebrated. It is worshipped. Lalith is worshipped in this day and age. But fear is... We won't say it's glorified in the same way. But fear is every bit as all-pervasive. But fear is far more subtle than lust. And surely, if you've observed yourself, you observe that in yourself. Lust, the very nature of lust is to be out there. Lust is a blooming flower. If you think about it in those terms, a flower is a beautiful thing. We're not, we don't want to say anything against flowers. But what a flower is, is, is a, an organ, it's a sexual organ of the plant. It is there designed to attract what that plant needs in order to reproduce. And so flowers produce beautiful perfumes, which are the pheromones of the plant. And they are these vibrant colors, which to us, as beautiful as they are, they're nothing compared to how insects see those flowers. Because the insect's vision is on the ultraviolet perspective, uh, on, on the ultraviolet spectrum, and flowers glow in the same way that if you see, if you look at um, those, those cameras, those night vision cameras and goggles and um, things that are UV uh, uh, fluorescent and they have any light, they, they glow in the dark under, with, under night vision. And that's how insects see the world. To them, it's, 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 it's one psychedelic trip of glowing, uh, 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 phosphorescent uh, flowers for them to feed on. And of course, the, all flowers that rely on pollinators, uh, their sexual organs are exposed. They're, to use a, uh, a term that is used in the animal kingdom, they are, uh, they are displaying themselves and they're displaying the fact that they are fertile, that they are ripe, that they're in heat, essentially. It's the same thing that female mammals do, especially in, uh, in packs. That the female, when she's in heat, she will display, she will put herself on display and that is the behavior which invites the dominant male to come in and, and carry through his alpha male status and take advantage of his first right of refusal mating rights. This is the feminine aspect of lust the invitation, the attraction in order to receive, to get what one desires, which, is, which relates directly 
to survival. There is no stronger instinct in all of nature than the instinct to survive. And that's what fear is. It's the survival instinct. But fear is not passive in that way. Fear does not invite how 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 can you function if you're you're under threat what what you're going to wait for somebody to save you you've got to you've got to take action you've got to fight or flight that's the masculine aspect of fear the feminine aspect of fear is as we just said you don't do anything you freeze, you become passive, or you fawn, which is you become accepting. You accept your oppressor. You accept the dominance of the other one, of, of the threat. The threat is threatening your freedom, your security, your life. So what do you do? You throw yourself at their mercy. You fawn on them. That is, a, that is the expression of feminine energy through fear. The... This aspect of fear, this forceful uh, take action for the sake of one's survival, extends into levels and levels and levels of expression of survival, so that one's comfort and security becomes a, a, a dialed down version of survival. So when we look at an ego like greed, for example, we can say greed is a is a lust for comfort and security but what drives comfort and security is fear the two things are inseparable you do you would never desire comfort and security if you didn't have the fear of death And that's why it is not enough, it is not enough to say that lust is the mother of all egos. That's only half the picture. It's only half the picture. It's not enough to say desire is the mother of all egos and all egos, you know, lust for this, lust for that, lust, 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 lust. Okay, fine. But that's only half the picture because it doesn't take into account 
all of these active modalities of egos. It doesn't take into account the fight or flight instinct. Because the desire to survive is there, but the feminine way of doing that is to freeze or fawn. And if we really meditate and feel into this, we discover that the masculine, aggressive, active expression of sexuality is domination. This is why that hideous and horrendous crime exists in the world that we call rape. Rape, the experts say, is not, is not sexual. Rape is not lust, the experts say. Rape is a dominance behavior. Rape is violence. But this is where modern psychology fails because they do not understand egos. They do not understand the interplay between the masculine and feminine force, and they do not understand the creative law of three. You cannot create without both forces. It is impossible to conceive of lust without the masculine influence. Because without the masculine influence, there's no point to lust. Without having both masculine and feminine there, there's no procreation. It's impossible. The entire universe is predicated upon that triunity of masculine, feminine, and their union. So to say that rape is not sexual is 100% ignorant. 100%. To say that homosexuality among animals or humping among animals, among males in nature, is not homosexuality, it's dominance behavior. Yeah, it's dominance behavior. For what purpose? To what end? So they can achieve alpha status and have dominant mating rights. That is why... It is expressing itself that way, in the same way that those males would perform the sexual act with females. To force, to dominate another in the sexual act is an act of violence. It is an act of domination. It is born out of insecurity and out of deep-seated anger and frustration, rage. But rage is born of fear. Anger is born of fear. Anger is born out of the frustration that we can, that circumstances do not conform to how we want them to be. That is our imposition onto the world our identification and attachment to outcomes 
there is no more sexual, masculine sexual expression than the word outcome. We don't have to walk you through the phonetics and the etymology of the word outcome to understand exactly what that is referring to. To have an attachment to outcomes and a desire for a certain outcome is a sexual desire because Lilith is the mother of all egos. The desire for outcomes, even women can identify and relate to that particular terminology because any woman who has ever wanted a child, who has ever wanted a baby, She has one focus during the sexual act with her partner. She's focused on one outcome. And she prays that that outcome will lead to the satisfaction that she seeks, that longing that she seeks, and that is to have a new life growing inside of her but that is dependent upon an outcome. And, that is, and so outcome is control, is dominance of circumstances, which is fear, but it is 100% lust. The word outcome, it's there. This is how intimate Asmodeus and Lilith are. This is how intimately connected fear and lust is. You cannot separate the two. You can't. Because they are both intrinsically and intimately related to survival and survival of the ego. And that includes, just as it does for mechanical nature, the reproduction, the spreading, the proliferation of egos. Because egos do not just sit there twiddling their thumbs, waiting for their opportunity to get to the head of the line or get to the top of the mountain or sit upon the iron throne as was recently revealed to us as we contemplated, we had a discussion with somebody about Game of Thrones and we were, we, had a, we were explaining how we never watched the show, how we only got halfway through the first episode. And we decided it was Dynasty with Dragons and that um, and the soft porn aspect of it really wasn't, wasn't keen. We weren't keen on uh, 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 you know, putting ourselves through that kind of... Uh, those kind of impressions on a regular basis. So we, we abandoned the show. We didn't watch the show. And then as we were retrospecting on that conversation and, and retrospecting on, on the fact that, but the show was so compelling to so many people. And suddenly it just, in a flash, it was there. The answer was there. And that is 
and that is the Iron Throne itself. Game of Thrones and the Seven Houses, the Seven Deadly Sins, and the Seven Great Ego, uh, the Seven Great Virtues, how all the different characters are representing different aspects of uh, egos and different virtues, and all of them are jockeying for position over the Iron Throne, or uh, the Iron Throne. In other words, to rule the kingdom. The fate of the kingdom is in their hands. And it's this. Uh, and then more came to us. For example, we knew of the character uh, Denarius, or Denarius, Denarius. Uh, Denarius is actually a Roman currency, silver coins uh, of the, we can't remember the dates, but the denarius was a type of a Roman currency, and currency is energy, currency is power. And of course, Denarius in Game of Thrones, she is called the mother of dragons. Uh, Denarius is the personification of the Divine Mother, because who else can be the mother of dragons but Divine Mother Devi Kundalini Shakti? So. We are now watching the show, and we are we are opening ourselves and and searching not searching but availing ourselves in a meditative state to watch the show, seeking more signs of esoteric wisdom in that particular show. It's still very soap opera ish, for lack of a better word, but clearly. The, the, the notion of the Iron Throne itself, the Iron Throne itself is made up of the melted swords and melted weapons of all the defeated lords. All, 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 those, all those who were defeated in order, in order to ascend the throne. That's what the throne is made from. So... The throne itself is an allegory for our many egos that constitute our individual shaitan, the, the false self. And the egos, all the houses, all, the, all those characters and all those houses, because there's many different expressions of each ego, they're all jockeying for position. Um, Safit says, I thought it also had, it, uh, had also a five elements aspect. Um, we're only six episodes in, so we'll, but, but clearly there's, uh, what is it? Westerfeld, which is the Northern, right? And they had the ice wall and then they had the Southern, they have the South, which is a lot of heat and this and that. And then Clearly, there's east and west coming to so the four cardinal uh, points. So, and they have those the four elements at least. We haven't encountered ether as such per se, but then again, we're six episodes in. So, give us a, give us a chance because there's what eight seasons. So we've hardly we've hardly just scratched the surface of the show. So, give us a chance, and when we're completed it, and we're, when we're a few episodes into uh, House of Dragon, then um, then we will uh, we will 
possibly do some kind of a, a live stream about it and we can have a, a, dis- a discussion about it then uh, a discussion about it uh, then um, <clears throat> so the practical application of knowing this, and we've said this before, how fear is the great chameleon, is to recognize that all of our egos want to reproduce. What they desire is our sexual force. And what they seek to control and dominate is our consciousness. In other words, the feminine aspect of ego desires our sexual energy because that is what they use to proliferate, to multiply. And the masculine aspect of egos, which is fear, seeks to dominate our mind, our consciousness, our emotions, our physical body. And together, they do this dance this hypnotic dance, Lilith and Asmodeus. And it is a hypnotic dance that they dance together, that they achieve what they want. To control and dominate, and to take, to steal, to receive. To, to, to siphon away in order to procreate. This is the whole of every ego. This is what every demon does. This is the foundation. Fear and lust are the mother and the father of all our egos, the false self, the, the, the individual shaitan, and everything that we face and we battle inside of us are a product of lust and fear. This is why we said in the write-up for today's talk is that, you know, in, in the New Age, because, of course, in the New Age, nobody, nobody is willing to give up the orgasm. Nobody wants to do that. So nobody rails against uh, lust in the New Age. So what do they say? 
They say fear is the opposite of of love. Love, uh, fear is the antithesis of love. And if only we could get rid of fear, we can get rid of everything. We can get rid of, uh, we, we can solve all the problems in the world and we, and everybody will love each other. And of course they really want everybody to love each other because many people in the new age, uh, spiritual community, they, they, they want to write up soul contracts with people and they want to have as many sexual partners as they can possibly can. And they want to have uh, a big, um, uh, uh, spiritual sexual orgies, just like, uh, Osho did on his, uh, on his uh, uh, ranch in the United States, in his uh, whatever he called it, his his spiritual community or whatever the hell it was, you know they they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have their lustful spiritual rainbows and unicorn orgies with each other, multiple partners, as many partners as you want. No, no, we don't want that oppressive masculine uh, uh, patriarchal thing called marriage. We don't want to have to commit ourselves to one single partner. That's 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 oppressive. That's fear based. Yeah, so it's it's totally that. Now, but what do we make of the fact that the Christian mystics in the Middle Ages, when they were writing up the seven deadly sins, lust was in there, but fear wasn't. What do we make of that? We do all know, we should all know this, this history, that the Catholic Church was essentially founded on fear. Constantine went into battle with countless uh, symbols, religious symbols, symbol, uh, uh, spiritual symbols painted on the shields and armor of all his troops. I can't remember the name of the battle, but he went and he went to battle and he, but he painted a lot of crosses and a lot of uh, Pax Christus, the, the P and the X with the cross. And, and oh, and fish, which was the sign of the Christians. There was lots of fish and crosses and Pax Christus and, and images like that. And uh, he won this battle, which was a million to one chance of winning. He was way outnumbered and et cetera, et cetera. So he took it as a sign. Combined with that and the and the ferocity with which the Christians fought and the ferocity with which they died and were willing to martyr themselves. And he realized that that hid his religion, the Roman religion, had become stale and idolatrous. And this new religion, this Christianity, gave people such a fire and such a fervor, and it seemed to be it seemed to work miracles on the battlefield. So hey, that's going to be the new religion of Rome. Because it was going to help secure his rule, would help secure the empire. Well, you know, it, it gets it, it's actually really interesting. It's, it's you can give them credit if you if you want, but uh, the 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 Black Lodge is uh, anyway. We can get into the the history and the the politics of the Nicene Council and all that stuff. Um, at a different time. But of course, that's one of the reasons why they had to redact all those Gospels and redact all the books of the Bible. And they only kept those books of the Bible that they could uh, readily control the message and easily contain the, the, the message is what they, is what they wanted. So 
they wanted a wrathful, judgeful God and they wanted a message. They wanted to be able to put the fear of God in the populace. And this is a tradition that the Catholic Church upheld and maintained because fear is control. Fear is dominance. The Catholic Church was born of a Caesar, was born out of politics. And politics is all about control, about governance. So that is why we live in a world which is possessed by fear, in which fear is proliferated all around all the time. That's why there's no good news. There's no such... Uh, there's no news like bad news. And why all the news is bad news. And while we're constantly bombarded with this danger and that danger and this is going to kill you and that's going to kill you and don't do this and don't do that. Well, it was in the 80s, it was this you shouldn't eat. Now it's that you shouldn't eat because you're going to get this diabetes and that diabetes. And, and um, so a Christian mystic writing about the seven deadly sins it's not going to include fear. Because fear is good. The fear of God is good. That's what keeps us on the right side of the line. And fear of Muslims and fear of Jews and fear of pagans. Oh yeah, this is what keeps us on the right side of the line, and fear of witches, and fear of heretics, this is what keeps everybody in line. And now today, we have a new age, which rails against fear. Fear is the worst thing in the world and fear this and fear that and we got to cut, get rid of fear and fear is the opposite of love and everything else. You mention lust to them. You so much as whisper it to them and they will lose their shit. They will attack you with such ferocity. Like a mother bear protecting her cubs. Why? Because lust and fear are one. They are one. They are two halves of the same, they are two sides of the same coin. They are the masculine and the feminine aspects that unite to produce all egos, all desires, all cravings and aversions. And they are 100% committed to each other for one purpose and one purpose alone, survival. And on a metaphysical level, it's their, it's their own self-preservation 
and proliferation. They are the foundational, they are the nucleus, the center, the foundational cornerstone of all, be, of all animal behavior and all mechanical nature. Survival and proliferation of the species. But it requires both, the masculine and feminine. It requires both lust and fear united as one. Because it is the, the desire to procreate is nothing without the desire for survival. It's the desire for survival of the species. And the desire to control and dominate is nothing without the benefits that come along with that. Namely, to have the first choice of mates in that particular example. To control outcomes, to desire outcomes. And we explained, even in the language, But then there's comfort and security, which is a different kind of like the cocooning aspect, the hoarding aspect. We've talked about this in the past. We've described that in multiple different egos, it's a, an expression of being emptied, being spent, or being filled up, being full. Being full is the feminine, the feminine energetic way, force, uh, how do we even describe that? It is, it is, is it a, it's not a, it's not a force. It's a, it's a, a state, the receptive state. And the masculine is the expressive state. The masculine wants to empty itself of what it has. And the feminine wants to receive what others have. And that is, as above, so below, that's expressed in every single sexual act, be it man, animal, vegetable, or mineral. In fact, consciousness itself operates on that basis. You can't even, you couldn't even process, you couldn't even experience this moment if the receptive, feminine aspect of your consciousness wasn't there to receive the masculine, expressive aspect of our consciousness. Tantra is way beyond the mere sexual act. It, it goes into very existence itself. To be requires each and every moment, each and every experience is an act of creation. Where the masculine expressive side of the universe is being received by the feminine receptive aspect of the universe. And when they unite, they create an experience. This is happening 
on the highest levels in the sixth dimension, in consciousness itself. This way of understanding and having this background available to us as a framework will help us face and better know how to approach the egos we observe in ourselves, the habits, the defects and vices that are causing us suffering and that are potentially causing others suffering in our lives. So a moment ago, we mentioned um, hoarding as a feminine expression of fear it's lust of course because you're filling yourself up you're surrounded but you're surrounding yourself with that which gives you comfort and security so people hoard things that that make them feel safe but of course you can never be safe and if you're indulging fear and the act of hoarding something, fear is telling you that you just need another thousand cans of soup in your bunker. You've got, you've got 25 rifles, you've got 2 million rounds of ammunition, and you've got 25,000 cans of Campbell's soup. Okay, you're doing pretty good, but, but to really feel safe, you need another couple thousand cans of soup. And maybe another couple hundred gallons of water to add to your 5,000 gallons that you have in the cistern. Maybe, maybe get a couple uh, hundred jugs. And you'll write it down on a list and you'll pin it up on a board. And you'll say, that's my to-do list. That's what I'm saving for. I got all my other bills and everything I do, but that's my next... Milestone. That's the next level I got to get. And then I'll feel really comfortable and secure and safe. And you'll save up your money and you'll make sacrifices and everything else you'll need to do in order to get, and you'll, you'll get that extra thousand cans of soup and you'll get the extra 500 rounds of ammunition. And you'll get the gallons of water and everything else that you put on your list. And now you'll look at your inventory, 26,000 cans of soup. 25,500 rounds of ammunition, 5,500 gallons of water. Okay, all right. Now we're good. Now we're good, you're going to say. And that feeling will last a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, however long, depending on your hoarding, how strong your hoarding instinct is. But then one day you'll go down into your bunker 
to just check up on everything, make sure everything's okay. You're going to check the mouse traps because those pesky things get everywhere and you can't have them you can't have them getting into your cans of Campbell's soup now, can you? So you got mouse traps everywhere. You got to protect it. Your bunkers, you got to make sure, sure your bunker's secure. There are no rats down there. So you're checking all the rat traps and the mouse traps. You're checking all the rat poison you put out and everything else. And then as you're doing that, you're going to glance up. You're going to say, you know, there's a there's an empty wall over there. You know, I could put some more shelves there. I could put some more shelves. I got room for at least another 2,000 cans. And, I, and that, that whole space over there, that's empty there too. That's a good another 25 uh, jugs of water. Or, you know, I could break open that wall and dig and make a new, make a crawl space in there. Then board it all up. I could have an extra little stash. I could put a whole bunch. I could move all the ammunition down into the crawl space, and that'll free up this much over here. I could fit another ten thousand cans and fifty gallons of water, and so it goes. And as soon as those thoughts come into your head, you're gonna, you're never going to feel safe and comfortable anymore with what you have. And you're going to need more and you're going to need more and more and more and more. And this is the, the great, uh, con job, the great distraction, the great We can spend, wealthy people, for example, can try spending the rest of their life meditating on greed. But if they don't comprehend this, what we're talking about now, if they don't get to the bottom of their greed and discover at its heart, at its foundation, lust and fear, they may never comprehend their greed. If they think that their, 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 their nonstop accumulation of wealth and their inability to stop, their inability, their inability to give it up or give it away, most of them, or maybe not most, those who have families and dynasties never give it away. They hoard it and they keep it in the family. But those who give it away to uh, charity, the, the philanthropists and so on, they, they often give it away at the end of their life because they realize, I can't take it with me. And I'm going to die. It's when they, it's those people, it's when they realize, I'm going to die. I'm mortal. I'm dying. I'm going to die. Nothing can stop that. And all this shit that I've been accumulating all my life It's completely, completely superfluous. And so they have a kind of comprehension and realization that it was never about greed. 
It was about fear. The fear of death. The desire, the lust for the lust for validation of some kind. The desire to be something because inherently inside of them was this void, this pit of not being. That is the hunger which drives lust and fear. The void inside, the fact that I can't feel my being, my true self. And so lust and fear, which are what? They're designed to fill the void. Like gluttony is designed to fill the void in your stomach. And like a desire to control outcomes is the aspect of lust that women leverage and take advantage of in order to fill themselves and fill their womb with what they long for, which is going to give them that feeling of satisfaction that they fulfilled their purpose and meaning in life. If nothing else, they've had a child. And why women are, in the classical sense, the seductress. And regardless of what men think or when men want to believe about the sexual act and the sexual dynamic between man and woman, we have, because of the nature of the house guest that we live with, which is fear, and, we, and because of the dynamic that that particular entity has introduced into every single sexual relationship in our life and our experience, and what it has attracted into our life who it has attracted into our life and what has been in play in that individual and how all of this created this dynamic of dominance and control, we can tell you unequivocally that regardless of what men think about who is in, who has dominant and dominate domination and control during the sexual act, we guarantee that 50 plus 1% of the population of women believe that they are 100% in control. And if men are honest with themselves, that's the truth. That's the truth. Because at any given moment in time, a woman has the ability to produce the desired outcome that she wants. And that's the truth, if men are honest with themselves. And they put their pride and their male ego aside, and they realize how much control women have. And we don't have to speculate about this. We know this not only from experience, but we were told outright. 
and it was made very, very, very clear. And this is why in ancient times, I mean, why women are often painted with a certain brush in ancient times about being the seductress and why Lilith is female. Because that aspect, right, like the flower attracting the pollinators, that the desire, that is the, that is the survival instinct. Now, what's really interesting is when, oh yeah, well, first of all, <laughs> Safit says something here that's maybe worthwhile mentioning. Fear fought with fear. Okay, let's talk about this for just one second. Fear is domination and control. Now, if you get a, the right balance of feminine passiv passivity and masculine activity, those two things can flow into each other and find a happy, comfortable medium of dynamic. This is the dominance and submissive thing that we were talking about earlier. Domination and submission, right? But if two uh, forces come and they are very, very energetically attuned, including including uh, with masculine feminine polarities, if two dominant forces meet each other, forget about one being a woman and one being a man, and they're both heterosexual, if they're both coming at it with that dominant active force, I'm the one, I'm going to be in control, it, forget it. It's, 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 if you've ever watched two bison butting heads and you can hear the crack for literally hundreds of miles across the prairie, you get a sense of the, the conflict, right? It's like, it's the same thing when you're trying to take two magnets and hold the same, push the same polarity uh, against one another the force re that's repelling that's it's it's like it's like no 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 i this is not going to happen <laughs> they do not go together like that and um um we've been on we've 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 experienced this firsthand it's uh it's it's uh but the same thing can happen with two submissive people. And then you have this can get even more complicated when you're dealing with someone who is not aggressive, overtly, extrovertedly aggressive, but someone who's has a strong masculine dominant uh, force, of, in other words, a strong demon of fear to control and dominate, but they're packaged inside of an introverted personality. So they become, they are passive aggressive. 
clearly we are extroverted and and uh the dominance and control inside of us comes out of us overtly like we wear our heart on our sleeve in every way we're extroverted we're an open book it just what comes into us flows out of us and just we're just like a conduit that way but some people are introverts and they suck everything in and they hold everything in they keep everything in but but if inside of them they have a very powerful fear which is dominant and aggressive but it's inside of a almost a a, a, a submissive mousy feminine uh, a passive vehicle this is where we end up with the incre- incredible toxicity of the passive aggressive person and the pa- the passive aggressive where all that active aggressive uh force is being focused inside of them to a point and it, it where it where it kind of achieves a fission react a fusion reaction and that fusion reaction releases this radioactive toxicity this this radiation and when you step into that radioactive field this is the passive aggressive energy that you feel from them where they're totally restrained they're totally controlled they're totally they're totally not overt but it's in the subtext it's it's this radiation coming out they're not punching you in the face it's not their way they're not extrovert they're introverted but they're aggressive and they're controlling and they're manipulating and that's that that vibe you get from them like you're being manipulated you're being controlled but it's 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 not overt you can't put your finger on it this is the way of the sjws for example this is the 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 way of that movement of gaslighting of going around of 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 undermining of hollowing out of dismantling of it's it's never mono mono face to face direct because they're they're cowards they're slimy they're grima worm tongue to go back to lord of the rings they're underhanded because remember the desire to dominate and control is fear and it takes courage to be an extrovert to be an introvert you 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 don't have the courage to do that you don't have the courage to step out mano e mano and face to face no 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 you scheme and you back so again let's go back to game of thrones let's look at what the characters there do underhanded undermining backstabbing weaseling plotting scheming and for what for dominance and control but they're cowards they're cowards it's all fear 
And the person who gets extroverted and, and, and in control and they, they lose their shit, they lose control and their fear becomes anger. Their desire to dominate and control becomes anger. Well, that's what anger is. It's just that, and lots of times that's triggered because fight or flight is triggered by fear. That's fear. That's the fear reaction. And without giving any details, we happen to know someone who went through an experience uh, very recently in which unbeknownst to them, they took steps which uh, got in the way of somebody's uh, desire, somebody's uh, schemes and plots. And they rather innocently and rather unknowingly just got in the way. And next thing you know, they were being beaten. Black and blue. by the person whose plans they had foiled. Because for that individual, those plans, that plot, was, from their perspective, a matter of life and death. It was survival. And so he felt perfectly justified and completely rationalized, beating the living hell out of her. He, in that moment, was just like Mama Bear, protecting her cubs. But it was a he. Just like the mama bear, when she's protecting her cubs, and she's even, she'll even risk facing a male grizzly twice her size because male grizzlies will eat grizzly cubs. They will do that because their survival, right? It's fear. And that mama bear will square off and, uh, and face even a, a, a grizzly male to give her cubs a, a chance, a fighting chance, a, a head start to get away. And she hopes that she'll convince the male that it's more trouble than it's, that, uh, that going after her cubs is more trouble than it's worth. But in that moment, that mama bear. She's not expressing the feminine aspect of fear. Yes, she's expressing the feminine aspect of fear in that she fears for the survival of her cubs and the survival of her species in that immediate sense. But that fight or flight that active, expressive, that's the masculine side coming through to face the threat head on.
at the root and at the bottom, the foundation of every ego, of everything that we observe in ourselves. We can start pulling at the strings and we unravel these egos and we get to the heart of the matter. And at the heart of the matter is the survival of the ego itself. which is fear and lust. The desire to proliferate and the desire to survive. That is the instinct that every ego has. That's part of their algorithm and that's part of what makes them operate. Which is why all this talk of letting go of your egos, let's once and for all let that go. Let's let go of that. That ridiculous, inane, naive, ignorant, and just plain idiotic and stupid notion. If after an hour and a half of discussing how the fundamental aspect of every single ego is the, its own survival and proliferation, and comparing their behaviors to that of a mother bear comparing her cubs, is not indication enough to you that you cannot let your egos go, then you are lost and hopeless and you will end up in hell. And you might as well give up and walk away if you think you can just let go of your egos. Like so many lost, forlorn, and ignorant, and stupid, naive people. Have you ever tried letting go of a fungal infection? Just let that go. Or bronchitis? Have you ever had bronchitis? Does your body just let it go? Is that how it works? Is that how the immune system works? Your body just lets it go, does it? Or cancer? Do you just let cancer go too? Is that how it works? Or any other parasite? A tick? Do you think the poor animal dying at the side of the road can let go of the maggots that are now starting to consume it? Let's not be stupid and let's not be naive. And when you hear a new ager talk like that, ask them. Ask them if they've ever, ever had a fungal infection and ask them if they just let it go. And ask them if a mother bear just, you know, if you see a couple bear cubs in the woods, oh, they're so cute. And you run over and you pick one up and you start cuddling it and, you know, just ask them if they think the mother bear is just going to let that go. And recognize that today, we have outright spoken out against the Christian mystics of the medieval ages, whose famous seven deadly sins left out the father of all sins, and how we're speaking out against the so-called New Age movement and its so-called wisdom of the, of the uh, Aquarian age, of the new golden age,
who have their own perverted version of what is the antithesis of love. Oh, it's fear. Oh yeah, and they conveniently leave out lust. Why? Because it doesn't serve them to include it. And how often have we said that some of the most dangerous information, the most dangerous lies, the most harmful misinformation and disinformation is that which is 50% true or 60% true or 70% or 80% or 90% truth. And what we're sharing with you, you can't read in a book. You can't read it in scripture. We can't point you to this text or that text or, or this tradition or that school. No, forget that. Everything that we're sharing with you comes from the book of life, from the book of reality, the living, breathing word of God in reality itself. Go and observe nature. Go and observe mechanical nature. Watch some nature documentaries. Don't go trying to pet baby cubs out in the wild. Don't do that. We don't recommend that. We don't recommend you exploring and discovering that truth that way. Because mother bears are not forgiving teachers. But you know of what we speak. You know we are speaking the objective truth here. And while there are probably better sources than others, you know, go and, go and read about Lilith and Asmodeus. We are willing to bet in the tradition, the, myth, the, the tradition of these two demons, you will discover more aspects of their relationship. Although, we suggest you find better sources uh, for them because uh, the fact that Asmodeus is just linked to lust is already erroneous. As we described, lust and fear are two sides of the same coin. Because the inclusion of domination and submission and control in the sexual act and the domination um, in order to uh, achieve a, 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 um, a status in the dominance hierarchy. Now, of course, this is where we get into interesting explorations. Because in one particular group of animals, the group of animals is known as a pride. A lion pride. And there's definitely the alpha, the leader of the pride. And then there's also the head, the leader, the alpha female, the alpha male and the alpha female. And there we have the word pride. Pride then, how does pride factor into all of this? Because knowing that lust and fear, the desire for survival, the survival instinct, and the ego's need to persist 
and proliferate. Those are covered with lust and fear. The next, the next closest level up would, would have to be gluttony. Because that's the desire to, uh, again, to feed. And so gluttony would be the next um, and perhaps we could say gluttony is the child of lust and fear. And gluttony really is that when you observe yourself, when you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and uh, you finally can't eat another bite and you sit down and you have that feeling of fullness, of stuffed, oh, I'm so stuffed, right? And you filled yourself up and now you feel comfortable and secure that uh, you've had your fill. And that is that which is inside of you. What is around you, what you own, would have to be greed. Greed is really gluttony externalized. Pride would have to be related to the control and dominance of the consciousness with the I, with the self. So, when one makes the focal point of one existence one's I, so if if the desire for survival and proliferation are the foundation, it's for the sake of the I. It's the survival and proliferation of the I. So pride is that making the I the focus and focal point. Whereas gluttony is more clearly a basic primal survival to feed, to be fed, and to hoard as much as possible within the limits of what one can hoard. But of course, gluttony is all about exceeding those limits, isn't it? And gluttony expresses itself as hoard, internal hoarding. So 
when you have uh, morbidly obese people who are morbidly obese, not because they have a glandular problem or some other medical condition, they are morbidly obese because they can't stop eating. They're hoarding. They're hoarding fat. They're hoarding energy. That's fear expressing itself through the physical body in the same way that the individual was hoarding ammunition and cans of Campbell's soup and gallons of water in their bunker. The individual is making of their own physical body a kind of bunker. They're increasing their fat stores. Again, in the animal kingdom, very useful, very practical for bears and for other hibernating animals and for other animals who, uh, mammals specifically, who need to survive the long winter. So they, they, they layer on the fat stores, right? When all the fruits are ripe uh, and, you know, in the, in the fall and bears will eat literally you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of berries and get fat off that sugar. That's, that's part of their survival. They're just, they're hoarding, they're storing. They're, they're creating a storehouse of energy. Or the squirrels and the chipmunks and the other smaller mammals that, yeah, they might be layering on fat, but they've got their, they've got their, uh, their dens. And they're, they're filling their dens with nuts and seeds, and they're hoarding. No, we are not animals, but inside of our, us are egos that are these programs. And we're intellectual animals. We have these programs. They're called egos. They work for mechanical nature by understanding how egos work for mechanical nature, we can understand how they work in us. Because people hoard everything. Just watch the television show Hoarders. Go on YouTube and do a search for Hoarders. And you will see people living with their homes as if they were a chipmunk in winter or preparing for the winter. And people will hoard everything or anything. And when you say, you know, we have similarities and you've seen it, then you know what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what is the program? What is the algorithm that is running that makes them behave that way? It's, it's a sickness, yes, but it's a program. It's a specific program. And what we're here sharing with you and what we're getting to the bottom of is what is the nature of that program so that you can identify it? Because as we've described in the Alm of Life, in the analogous ultimate methodology of psychology, the first step is mindfulness. To be able to recognize and diagnose a problem. It's like the first step of medicine. Before you can heal, you have to know what the problem is. If you have malware on your computer, before you can get rid of it, the anti-malware software has to know what it is. It has to know what it's doing, what it's affecting, how it's affecting it, and what's behind it. What's the code that's causing it? So by being able to get to the heart and bottom 
of these egos and understanding that at their heart, one aspect of it is always going to be lust and fear and the dynamic between them. This will give us, this will give us a, uh, um, uh, a meaningful way to approach it. Okay, Azazel asks a good question here. Didn't God say that we're worse than animals? It's a good starting point of humility to start with. Yes, he did say that we're worse than animals. But why is that? Because animals are innocent. Egos work for mechanical nature. And animals at that level need egos because they're innocent. They only have whatever consciousness they have at their level to be able to function as animals. But they're innocent. They're like children. Their souls are like children. In this humanity, you have people who are who willingly and eagerly participate in animal behavior. That's the difference. Animals follow their instincts. They follow their egos because they're animals. Because that's their role in nature, to do so. But human beings indulge our egos and overindulge our egos. Even when we know it's wrong, even when we know it's unnecessary. And we identify with those egos. We identify with what the egos whisper to us and tell us is the truth. And we believe them. Because we like it. Which is another thing that you can tell the New Agers about letting go of their egos and letting go of this and letting go of that. You are never going to do that. You know why? Because you love it too much. You love your suffering and you love yourself and you love your egos way too much to let go of them. Animals are not like that. Just all you got to do is observe animals to know that they're not like that. They don't have that level of uh, that type of self-awareness. <clears throat> and as Azil says, the innermost knows more that my consciousness can download. Interesting confluence of uh, terminology there. Actually, your innermost knows what your consciousness can download. That's what your innermost knows. What you, Azazel, in your mind can know is uh, greatly limited compared to what your monad uh, and uh, your consciousness knows. 
just a slight i think you were i think you were using consciousness in, in a different in a different way there um All right, so where were we? So gluttony, we think it's pretty clear. Gluttony is like hoarding inside the body and hoarding fat and so on and so forth. And we describe that, related to that, with external hoarding, which is all comfort and security. It's all fear. Pride, we relate to the, for example, the pride of lions and the fact that having the alpha status in a pack affords one certain benefits so one of the benefits that alpha status gives uh, us is the first right of refusal when it comes to choosing a mate now choosing a mate choosing a sexual partner in one way, shape, or form is related to affection and expressing affection. And even if it's just pure lust, it doesn't matter. There's still that aspect to it. And if it's emotional affection, uh, whether that's inferior sentimentality or superior love, pride is the internalization or the direction of that love, of that affection, to oneself. Pride, very simply expressed, is hoarding love. It's too much self-love. Too much self-esteem. It's hoarding. Directed inward. So pride, you have the narcissist. The narcissist who loves themselves too much. It's like the introvert, again, when we were describing the, the, the introvert. The, the introvert who has a lot of love to give. But they're, they're, but that introversion becomes twisted and wrapped up in fear. And I can't give love away to others. I might run out. And I can't give all of my love to some other person. They might take it all. They might break my heart. I might never be able to love again. I might lose the ability to love. Aha. Now. You see? We're going to protect our love. We're going to hoard our love. Now, speaking of love, well then, we're going to love ourselves. Because we need to love somebody. Because love needs to love the energy must flow. Currency must flow. Niagara Falls will not be held back. So, direct it inward. Direct it at the self. At the I. 
The ego steals the love and uses the hoarding for comfort and security of love and cocoons itself around itself and inverts that love. It, it inverts that love, that energy becomes uh, inverted and just as the desire for dominance and control if it's directed in through the introverted process it creates a fusion reaction that releases all this negative radiation if you take all of your love and all of your affection and all of your care and consideration for others and you direct it into yourself then it's going to achieve another kind of uh, 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 fusion reaction in there. And the energy that's going to produce, be produced is going to be this toxic radiation that we call the narcissistic sociopath. The narcissistic so sociopath, the one who walks around with an aura, a field, an energetic field of indifference to everyone and everything around them. And instead, that field is a, is a field of, it's a, it's a vacuum field. It's a suction field. And when these people enter a room, much the same way like the, uh, the passive-aggressive person, we call them an energy, we call them an energy vampire. But the, socio, the sociopathic narcissist or narcissistic sociopath, it's the same thing. They, 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 they command, the, they walk into a room, everybody looks at them, right? So much like the passive-aggressive person, they, they control and they manipulate, but the narcissistic sociopath is focused on that, uh, on that receiving that consciousness, receiving that attention, having all eyes on them. They need to be the center of attention. They need to be on the red carpet, right? They need to be the uh, whatever. They, they enter into the ballroom and all 300 people are gazing at them or looking at them. Oh, what is he wearing? Oh, what are they doing? What are they doing? You know, what it, you know, and, and they they feed on that, they relish on that. That's pride. But again, it's, it's just lust and fear. Different aspects of that expressive and receptive form of proliferation or, or uh, preservation of, of hoarding or of dominance and control or of seduction, because again, there's the seductive aspect of the narcissist, right? The narcissist blooms like a flower or like a peacock opening his feathers. 
to, to draw in the attention, to draw in everything that it desires. But what does it desire? Energy and attention. It wants to hoard it and keep it for himself. But like all hoarders, it's never enough. It's never enough. That's pride. And what about greed? Well, we've already covered hoarding. And hoarding is really just a type of greed. It's just another type. Like we said, gluttony is hoarding in the body. Gluttony is greed for food. Right? Lust and the, the, the desire for comfort and security to never run out of food because it's a self-preservation thing, right? So if I layer on lots of fat, boy, I can go without food for six months and still survive. I can survive off of my fat stores like bears in hibernation over the winter. That's why mammals put on fat. That's why we have that functionality in our bodies to do that because that's precisely the survival instinct that mammals have and then the, uh, the capacity to survive Things like nuclear winters and um, and uh, ice ages, which is pr precisely why mammals are so dominant in the world, whereas once once upon a time it was reptiles. So then, greed is just another form of hoarding, another form of comfort and security of accumulation, but accumulation of stuff. So hoarding is accumulation of. Hoarding is very much like a, a pathology, uh, like a, a, an obsessive, obsessive compulsive uh, expression of, of the nesting instinct, right? So uh, we were talking earlier about mammals and nuts in their dens and all that kind of stuff. And we talked about gluttony with fat in the body, of course. So the next one, the next expression of that um, would be stuff of value that what other people consider valuable. In other words, greed is the hoarding and accumulation of things of value. And greed, greed has a sister if you will, or twin, and that's envy. Because what is of value to you is probably of value to others. So what they own and what is of value to them may be of value to you. And what you, when you want, when you desire something that somebody else has, you're greedy for your coveting someone else's property and so that's one step away of that's one step away of being a thief uh, and to be envious of another's success is to be insecure in your own success or your own status if you envy someone else's status, you're insecure of your status and you desire their status. 
So you're greedy for status and you're never satisfied with the status you have. And so you identify with and attach yourself to the status that someone else has. Someone else has. And if they improve their status, you don't see, you don't register their status as, as, as an improvement that you should be happy for and congratulate them on and say, wow, that's great. You were down here. Now you're up here. I'm so happy for you. No, you see yourself relative to their bump in status and you take it as an affront. You feel threatened by their increase in status because relative to them, you are now lower. Their success has taken from your status. That's how you process it. That's how you see it. That's why greedy people, greedy people are miserly, cheap people. They don't tip or they tip very little, the bare minimum of what they can get away with. They don't, they don't give to charity. They don't help others because they're hoarding. Because they judge themselves and their status on this outward uh, uh, measures of value. And a lot of the time, greed goes hand in hand with envy because they're measuring themselves. They're judging themselves against the only thing they can do, and that's their peers. Someone who's greedy can only judge what they have and what they own against some other precedent. So-and-so has the, uh, so-and-so has the, accumulated the personal wealth of a small third world nation, or this person made this much money in the stock market, like they were, they had the GDP of a small country. Right, you always hear, you know, uh, these kinds of comparisons or they will make these comparisons. They have the Forbes, uh, top 500 or top 100, the 100 wealthiest billionaires in the world, right? It's always a list. It's always saying, because it's an inversion of the hierarchy, but they always have these levels and levels and levels. And they, they don't greedy people, truly greedy people are greedy to get to that next level and beat so-and-so and get ahead of so-and-so. It's this very competitive uh, type of type of thing. And they don't want to lose so much as a penny because it was so hard fought. They worked so hard. They, they invested so much into it and to getting it in the first place. But then they envy if somebody else passes them or somebody else surpasses them or moves ahead. Because again, relative, because they're always measuring themselves to other people. That's essentially greed and envy. They're, they're, they're intimately related. They're intimately related. Just like lust and fear are intimately related. Then we get to an interesting one. How about laziness? What about sloth? Laziness. What's laziness then? You just don't want to do anything. <laughs> it, how is laziness 
lust and how is laziness fear? Is laziness lust or fear? It's a good question. It's worthwhile meditating on. But let's see if we can't work through it. By the way, we have a chat. You, you, we, we have a link. You can, you can join because this is an interesting, this is an interesting thing. We all know that laziness is a real ego. Laziness is a thing. But what is it? What is its true nature? So far, we've shown gluttony, pride, greed, envy. Right? Lust and fear make seven. So... So that leaves us with laziness. No, sorry, lust and greed make six, so it leaves us with laziness, which is the seventh. Well, it really comes down to self-observation. And it really comes down to a different a different currency. It's the same currency, but it's a different expression of that same currency. Attention and energy. You see, each one of these egos, we were describing, for example, greed. Greed is not just accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, like hoarding, right? Hoarding is not just hoarding, 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 hoarding. One of the key things about hoarding and greed, as we mentioned specifically in greed, the inability to give it away. Miserliness, cheapness. And in hoarding, it's holding on to things for dear life. Being so identified with it that if you start trying to throw away stuff, it's like you're throwing a part of yourself away. So it's a preservation instinct, right? The identification and and attachment to that stuff. This is why in Buddhism, they always use the words identification and attachment. And the reason why they use those words is precisely how they relate to fear. That the the ego itself, its sense of self, its sense of survival, its sense of being, its its very existence relies on capturing the consciousness. That's identification and attachment such that the stuff that you are hoarding becomes an extension of who you are. Now, we won't uh, begrudge anybody who wants to hold on to their hand. If somebody comes along and says, we're chopping off 
people's hands and you say, not my hand, you're not, we won't begrudge you that because a hand is a, is, is a part of your body. And even though your body is not who you really are, we have to be practical. You can't go away giving away your limbs or your, you know, it's not so easy to give away organs. Right? If you can give away a kidney to save a life, that's your decision. And if you do that, then that's a beautiful sacrifice. Wonderful. But you can't go giving away your heart while you're still using it. That's impractical. But hoarding and greed is like that. The ego creates the attachment, creates the identification that makes that stuff or that money or that property or that fame or that fortune or that title or that reputation an extension of the self that's every bit as important and precious to us as our own left hand. That's the attachment, right? And the identification is you can't have, okay, you can't have my left hand. It's my left hand. I'm still using it. What comes into our mind is that is a Monty Python and the meaning of life, live organ transplants. But that's 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 another uh, that's just an aside. But so now let's come back to laziness for a moment. The energy, and if you say time is money. And my energy, if you think about hoarding energy, like a gluttonous person hoards food and packs layers of fat onto themselves to make them feel substantial and satisfied. And they have that feeling of, oh, yeah, I'm full. Now they you know, flop down on the couch. And they unbutton the top button on the trousers. They put on the TV, right? And now they're ready to ah, just, 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 you know, feed me impressions. I just want to zonk out, you know, zone out. I want to become like a zombie. There's kind of like this connectedness with laziness because doing, being, takes effort. Being takes energy. Not being is effortless. I'll say that again. Being requires energy. Being requires an active consciousness to be awake. And then a... a, a application of energy. We must put energy into the activity of being. Laziness requires no uh, expenditure of energy on our part. It requires no concentration, no focus, no consciousness. In fact, laziness is the ultimate in unconsciousness. 
but something gets our energy in those moments when we're being lazy we're so lazy that but that's laziness itself that's feeding off of us so it says just relax here put on the tv here's a video game which you can play like you know you got your controller in your hand uh you know you're half zombified or there's you put on the television show that you watch like half zombified you're half falling asleep half awake you got dishes piling up in the kitchen you got laundry piling up in the uh in the hamper you've got bills piling up that you should be paying you've got all kinds of stuff that you could be doing should be doing but you're not doing any of it you're just simply not being and you're going through your day and you're you know you're being pulled every which way your attention here attention there everything is is vying for your attention and you remember this stupid lecture on youtube or whatever that says oh but pay attention to yourself don't forget your divine mother and your mind says ah, don't do that you can't do that you don't have energy for that you don't have attention for that you have all these other things you need to worry about yeah being really 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 busy and keeping yourself really 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 busy is also laziness laziness is anything that keeps you from being laziness is the ultimate in not being because even lust and ego even lust and fear even if it's passive it's it's still you have a concern you're worried about something you want something you have a desire laziness is even the absence of that where you're too lazy to even care about your own survival it's it's lack of it's like the ultimate in lack of self care you don't even you don't even care about surviving if pride is loving and caring about yourself too much laziness is the opposite of that what's interesting is that laziness may therefore seem like it can't have lust and fear at its heart 
because lust and fear are kind of active and you're worried about survival, right? But if laziness, you're not worried about anything, then how can laziness be a product of that? But that's how insidious and clever and subtle egos are. Because remember that the survival that we're talking about here is the survival of the egos themselves. Lust and fear serve the self-preservation of the egos. But egos are by definition not being. To be present, to be conscious, to be aware, to be requires the expenditure of energy. To hoard that energy, not for the sake of applying it in any which way, in order to not be. To, and even scatter the energy and scatter the consciousness to be a scatterbrain to have ADHD to be a busybody and have all this stuff to do and be so busy you can't you don't have time to observe yourself you don't have time to meditate you don't have time to pray you don't have time to study you don't have time to do anything I'm too busy. I have too much to worry about. It's the ultimate in laziness. It seems like a contradiction. It seems like a paradox. But laziness is simply not being. And that's what ego is. It's not being. The being is the greatest threat to the existence of ego, which is not being. Laziness is a survival instinct. It's a, it's a survival mechanism. Laziness will not proliferate egos, but it will preserve them because it will prevent the energy in the consciousness from flowing back to the being. Laziness is laziness is a defeated army burning its tanks and burning its bridges as it retreats so as not to allow their military hardware and, and the infrastructure to fall into the hands of the enemy, to fall into the hands of the conqueror. 
This is why laziness has can even be expelling and wasting all the energy. It's the equivalent of an army that's been defeated and on the retreat. And as they retreat, the soldiers are firing all their ammunition into the air or, or blowing up all their, their munitions so that, so that the munitions don't fall into the hands of the conqueror. In Iraq, during the Gulf War, was it, it, as the Iraqis were pushed out of Kuwait back into uh, Iraq, right? In the Gulf War. What did they do? They lit the oil fields on fire. This is laziness. Laziness is spite. Laziness is... It's, it's all of these things. And let us never forget that from the point of view, from our point of view, lust desires our sexual energy. Lust feeds on our sexual energy. Laziness sucks the sexual energy out of us and expels it into something. Laziness is slow motion ejaculation. Laziness is slow motion orgasm. It's orgasm that's stretched out over you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. If orgasm is in a sudden explosion of sexual force, laziness is a slow leak. Drip, 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 drip. Over hours and hours and hours. Or it's that frenetic keeping us so busy, so distracted, and so crazy. Like if that's our personality and we're frantic or whatever, and we can't even be really lazy and just flop down on the couch and watch TV for four hours. We always have to be doing something. So we're, we're always, even if the TV's on, we're on our, we got our phone here. We got something else going. We got something talking on the phone. And then, we, oh, now I want a snack. And we jump up and go get a snack. And, we always, and then we got, you know, we're finding something else to do. And oh my gosh, and then I have to do this. No, oh, I forgot to do that. And we jump up and do something else, right? We might be that personality. We might have that type of frenetic personality energy, but that laziness, that not being, that always fluttering about, like someone described it to, to us, like a, like a butterfly, you know, from or a moth, you know, from leaf to leaf to leaf, or sorry, from flower to flower to flower to flower. So it's hard to visualize and describe that as sloth. It's, it's easy to understand and visualize sloth, a slow motion draining of energy over over time it's harder to 
to comprehend that that busy bee personality as laziness. But insofar as that busy bee personality is always reactive, that ADD, ADHD kind of personality, that busy mind, it's always distracting us with something new. It's preventing us from really focusing and really being in the moment and remembering our Divine Mother. Because remember, being takes energy. Being takes effort. Being takes consciousness. And if something's stealing our consciousness and, and siphoning off our energy first in this thing and then that thing and, every, and everything and every which way, laziness is lust in slow motion. And it is fear in the control and manipulation of, 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 of spite, of defeating the opponent, which is the being, through a scorched earth. If I can't have it, no one can. Mentality. Laziness is the, the, the spiteful uh, manipulation, control, and siphoning it off of sexual energy for its own sake. To not be. Simply not be. Not be angry, not be greedy, not be envious, not be afraid, not be lustful, right? Just not be anything, but particularly not be the being. Laziness. If you visualize all of these things in a kind of downward spiral going towards a drain, laziness is at right at the bottom, right at the drain. <laughs> laziness is that drain. <laughs> it's the last thing. It's the last line of defense. We like that military analogy that came to us just a few minutes ago because it really is that. Even if all the other egos are, are, are being advanced upon, they've got laziness there to, to blow up the bridges and ignite all of the ammunition to make sure that the being can't get his hands on it. And this is so important to grasp because so many self-styled spiritual people, they think they've got a handle. They're not, they think that they've got a handle on all their egos. They're not greedy. They're not envious they might not even be lustful they they're not proud they help other people they do all these other things right and they're not lazy they're industrious they're busy they keep themselves busy and they go around and they go to church group and this group and that group and they 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 volunteer here and they volunteer there and they do all these things right really good really spiritual people right But they don't know this insidious drain called laziness, the embodiment of not being, the, the, the essence of not being, the one ego that really captures what it means to not be. And through laziness, they're being controlled and manipulated.
and all their energy is being drained out. And they might be doing really good things for really other people. And they think that they're that they're making all this advances and they're making all this progress on themselves, but they're not observing themselves and they're not remembering themselves. And even billionaires who turn become great philanthropists and spend the rest of their life giving away all that they have. It's just a trick. If you don't have self-knowledge, if you don't awaken, if you don't do the work on yourself, giving all the money and giving all the time and giving all the energy and everything away to everybody else, it's just, it's just laziness. All of your energy, all of your consciousness is being consumed outside of you and none of it is being applied to your innermost. So you're not, if you do all those things mechanically, if you do all those things with pride, and a kind of self-righteousness, and a kind of narcissism. And you know people like this. People that, people that aren't complete, they're not whole, unless they're constantly doting on others, and constantly these busybody people that can't sit still. They can't stop. They can't just be. They're always doing something. Doing, 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 doing. Even if it's doing nothing. That's laziness. Laziness is human doing. And we are not meant to be human doings. We are meant to be human beings. And how are we supposed to get anything done? Being a human being done. And that takes effort. That takes consciousness. Why? Because of the challenges, the sacrifice, the suffering. And because of all the opposition inside of us. All these egos that are going to be trying us to do. To be a human doing. Even if that's, being, even if that's doing nothing. So really, the opposite ends of the spectrum, we now have a continuum. We have a, we have a kind of circle, a continuum. And at one end, we have lust and fear. And on the other end, we have laziness. Doing, doing, doing. Not doing anything of the other stuff, just doing, even if it's not doing anything but not being. And it's slow motion orgasm. It's slow motion fornication. And all of the egos, because they all take our consciousness, they all manipulate and control, and they all siphon our sexual energy, it's all fornication of one form or another. And it's all fear, dominance, and control in one form or another. And laziness is the last resort. Where the egos say, 
okay, we can't get them with, we can't get them with uh, uh, fear. We can't get them with pride. We can't get them with greed. We can't get them with envy. We can't get them with gluttony. Well, if we can't get them, no one can have them. Especially the being can't have them. So we flush them down the toilet of laziness. Do you see? Can you grasp how important all of this is? And why to, it's not enough to say lust is the mother of all egos. And it's not enough to say fear is the antithesis of love. No. Dharmakaya says, could you speak of the test of Dairene related to lust on the path of initiation? No, we cannot because we don't even know who that is. We don't know who we don't know who Dairene is. And no, so no, we can't speak to that. Sorry. You'll have to do a Google search, go to glorian.org and do a search for Dairene. We don't know who that is. And uh, here, why don't we, let's see now, Irene, okay, so if nobody else has any other questions, we might as well, uh, here, it says, Dyrene. Uh, a test or ordeal of fidelity. Let's make this bigger so you guys can see this. Okay. When Jehovah Elohim says to Adam and Eve from the tree, Da'at, the sexual force, who is in the middle of the garden, which is Yasad, you shall not eat. This is the first ordeal. But who is the one who gives, the Adam, gives to Adam the apple? It is Eve. In this case, the Dairene ordeal is in relation with the female aspect. But when people read literally, they think that it is that it is in relation with a male who is going to be tested by a woman in the physical world. Of course, if I am a man, I will be tested by a woman. But if you are a woman, you are going to be tested by a man. And that is the Dairene ordeal, because that Dairene ordeal is a female force. It is not related with certain women or certain men. It is always related with our genitals, sexual force, which is always feminine. And um, that quote comes from a lecture related to the Arcanum uh, 22. So basically then, what they're talking about here, Dharmakaya, is the, uh, the temptation, the fact that the temptation of lust. So that's when we are being tempted to fornicate, to, we are being tempted to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which means we are being tempted to uh, indulge in the orgasm. And, and as the quotation here suggests, it's not, it's the, uh, it doesn't matter what sex we are, it's always, that temptation comes through uh, a sexual partner that we are tempted. Or, Let's be clear, we can be tempted, you know, through uh, pornography, uh, you know, masturbation, etc. However, 
because this is related to an, initi an initiation and has a name Direne, uh, it, it will be with a sexual partner. So if you are beginning to practice white Tantra or whenever you're practicing white Tantra with your partner, um, you will be undergoing the Direne ordeal. Well, maybe not always, but on, but you will, and you will have to overcome it and you will have to overcome it more than once because it's a cyclical, it's a cyclical spiral thing. And as you advance in white Tantra, yes, in many ways, white Tantra becomes easier, but in many ways it becomes more difficult because maybe the temptations are fewer and far between, but when they arise, they are that much more intense and they are that much more because the, the higher you go on the alm of life, as you're doing the expanding spiral, each time you do a revolution of the hero's journey, each time you have to descend into hell and you come back from hell, you pass the test, you come back from hell, you're at the next higher level. But then when you descend again, you're going to be going to the next deeper level and you will have to face that demon again because you have to comprehend these demons uh, in all 49 levels of the mind. And in accordance with the 33 level, uh, 33 vertebrae of the spinal column. So it's not like we pass one of these tests or initiations once and then that's it. It's, it's not like that at all. So um, that's then what, what the Direne... Uh, so does that answer your question? As we've often said before, words and labels and names are not our strong suit. We do not have a mind for remembering these. It's something that has something to do with the fact that uh, it has something to do with the fact that we're here to help a humanity and cast the broadest net and we use visualizations and we use allegories and we use and we use the living breathing word of the logos which is writ large and small in the book of life so we talk about mama bear and her cubs like last week last week what did we say we say you can call god chippy if you can see god in a chipmunk or a squirrel then that's god and you can call him chippy god doesn't care so we're we are we are we are not attached to labels. We just don't. And, and, and I think we were born with a kind of uh, uh, premature Alzheimer's or whatever, which prevents us from, from being able to spout off all of this jargon and all of these labels and names from like 10,000 years of spiritual tradition, which just causes people's eyes to gloss over. Right? But hey, we can talk about Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. And what people like, oh, that's cool. I've seen that. I know what he's talking about. This is the Aquarian way. The living, breathing word of God is all around us. It's not in a dusty old tome written in Sanskrit 7,000 years ago. It's not confined to that. And even though uh, the avatar of Aquarius was the, 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 like the Buddha Maitreya synthesizing all of the teachings from all of history and synthesizing it into a, into a codex, which he called Christian Gnosticism for the Aquarian age. And we needed that. We all, we needed that. We needed that to be our, in many ways, our modern, our modern day uh, library of 
of um, Alexandria. But the point of a library is not to become a prisoner inside of it. The point of a library is to give you that which you need to step out into the world and see and discover the world anew. To verify for yourself anything and everything that you read in the library. To point you in the right direction. To give you the context, the framework, the background with which to go and seek the truth for yourself out there in your own experience, on your own path, in the wide world around you, which is all God. How many times have we read or have you read in your esoteric studies? Study the ego, study the ego, study yourself, comprehend your egos, comprehend your egos, comprehend your egos. Has it never troubled you that nobody has ever really taken the time or made the effort to break down what's what they really are and how they really work and what's really going on inside of them? We've just shared with you the so-called seven deadly sins. And shown precisely. And maybe not completely and holistically. There are we're certainly there's probably gaps and there's probably extra things for you to know and discover and find out. Well, I mean, we wrote an enormous article just on fear alone and the many, 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 many faces of fear. Because we didn't talk about social anxiety. We didn't talk about uh, uh, anxiety in general. We didn't talk about depression, for instance. And how all these other conditions flow and form, these other formations and conditions and phenomena uh, are, are further expressions but what we have done, what we hope we've done, is given you a nucleus and a foundation and recognize that this oversimplification, lust is the mother of all egos, oh, the harlot of Babylon, every harlot has a pimp. Every harlot has a pimp. Uh, no mother can give birth to anything without a father. Period. Full stop. And there is the mythos of Lilith and Admodius. It's there for, for you to discover and to read. If there's something in that in that tale, that story, which which fleshes out what we've discussed here today, what we've shared with you today. But rest assured, rest assured, 
this phenomenon, and as we just today uh, posted and made, we, we uh, hang on a second. We um, here, just one moment. We'll. No, 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 no. Uh, where are we looking for? Here. So we just posted this on Facebook today. You may have seen this. This is uh, our new um, egos in the context of Game of Thrones. Here, we show how lust and fear work together. And uh, that... And that it's not enough to say lust is the mother of all this and fear is the, op- the, the, the antithesis of love. And as, as you know, it makes for a good soundbite. It makes for a good meme on the internet. But in understanding that this part, that egos enslave consciousness and devour vital energy. These two universal aspects of all egos are precisely what are our clue. The enslaving of consciousness is fear, because that's dominance and control. And the devouring of vital energy, that's lust. That's lust. Lust wants to be filled up or expelled out, right? Down and out. The sexual energy flow flow down and out from us because the ego wants to consume it. So it makes us want to spill it. And the fear wants to control and dominate us so it can enslave us. And it does that by by capturing our attention and enslaving our attention. That's what it wants, our energy and attention. Fear gets our attention and lust gets our energy. And they work together. There's a dance that they perform. It's a it's a it's a hypnotic dance. It's like a belly dance, but it's both of them. it's like it's like watching championship ballroom dancers. Um, right. This is the, this was our, uh, uh, what we did for today's, um, talk. And this is, we found this image. This is Lilith and Asmodeus, uh, by an artist on the internet. And so when you think of any ego, think of this dynamic, think of this couple, the mother and father of all egos and all suffering. Lust and fear. And that is why these are the two, the two most dangerous and most difficult egos that any of us will overcome.
And they are at the heart. They are at the heart of any and all ego that you're comprehending, trying to comprehend. So as you're observing and diagnosing and analyzing in meditation how that ego goes about controlling you and stealing from you your, your energy, you can, you can use the information that you learned here today What is it like? What is it really after? What's it really after? What's this really all about? This greed, this hoarding, this binging, this laziness, this whatever. This is not this is not a invitation to fall into spiritual bypassing and say, well, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, study on any of these egos in myself and I don't have to work on myself in those ways. All I got to do is get to lust and, and fear. No, because you've watched Game of Thrones probably and you know that if you kill the king, the king has heirs to the throne. You have to deal with the whole corrupt family. You have to deal with the whole mafia. You can't, you know, it's like, it's like in, um, in Marvel, in Captain America, they have that evil uh, uh, group called Hydra. And they say, you cut off one head, two more take its place. Okay, you have to be like Hercules. He cuts off the head, all seven heads of the Hydra. It's, you... Each one is unique, but you can understand, comprehend better and observe better if you have a framework with which to comprehend that all egos want energy and consciousness. And at the heart of that is some application of lust and some application of fear. And if you know that fear is, is either dominance or hoarding and, and lust is either taking in or draining out, it can be masculine, it can be feminine, it can be extroverted, it can be introverted. You see, you have, you have these different dynamics now in this framework with which to apply and test and observe. And then you can start narrowing in, honing in on your analysis and get you closer to that comprehension that you seek, the synthesis of knowledge, of self-evident experiential knowledge, when you now know that ego in its entirely, fully. But it's not enough to know all this intellectually, and it's not enough just to believe it. It's not enough to chalk it up as saying, oh, well, that's interesting, and move on with your day, because we have to apply this. We have to do it. We have to practice it. Does anyone have any questions? We're just shy of three hours, so uh, we open it up. Does anybody have any questions or anything else to add or offer or share?
Um, <laughs> all right then. If no one has a, maybe raise your hand or give us give us a sign if you're typing something. We don't want to. We don't want to. Uh, we don't want to cut you off if you're in the middle of typing something, but okay. If there's no more questions or comments, thank you for joining us. And, uh, we hope to see you again, uh, next week. Have a good week. We hope, uh, you found this, uh, informative and, uh, we hope that, uh, you will find it useful and practical, uh, applying it in your life as you observe yourself. And as you make an attempt to comprehend the many defects and vices that are standing between you and your being. For us anyway, maybe, here's, here's a quick confession we have for you. I mean, we've already said this in the past, but we'll say it again anyway. For us, these live streams are awaking meditation. We had, coming in today, the title. That's what was given to us. Everything else, absolutely none of what we shared with you was cognitively pre-planned or pre we were precognizant of in, in, in any way, shape, or form. We had the title and we went through the process of allowing ourselves to be led to where we arrived at, which among other things included what is, in my opinion at least, a revelation when it comes to laziness. And what laziness really is. Um, so, so thank you. Thank you for giving us a reason to take this time and make this effort for your sake. Because in the process of doing so, we learn. I learn. I discover, I hear things that I've never heard before, that I've never read before. And it's th through this process of it's almost like a, uh, uh, psychoanalysis, if you will, but it's not, it is a psychoanalysis in a very real sense but in a general universal sense, what applies to all psyches. But this process, it's not an intellectual process. It's not a mental process. It's a conscious process. It's a process of cognizance. In many ways, in many ways, as Azil says, it's like an opera of exchanging, uh, of exchange. 
sharing knowledge. For us, as you might imagine, it is practice, but it is also gives me the quiet confidence of knowing that I can do something like schedule a lecture with a title and a topic that I know next to nothing about. And I only have the title. And this is what's called suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune because people start showing up and they expect to hear about that topic. And so, you know, it's been over a year since we started doing these live streams, but to one degree or another, we've been doing this all of our life to varying degrees of success and varying degrees of mistake and error. Like for example, last week, we said that uh, last week's lecture on uh, September 11th, 2022 was precisely 11 years after September 11th. Well, no, of course it wasn't 11 years after September 11th. It was 21 years <laughs> after September 11th. So not, not too good with the math. Not too good with the math. <laughs> that was my mistake. Um, but even 21 has esoteric significance to it because it's seven times three. So, but regardless, let's, uh, let, as Azil says, yeah, I would have joined if it wasn't for being depressed and have become an expert of not being able to do anything. Aha. but I can listen for sure. Um, let's jump in. Let's come back to that in a second. But first we say, Benjamin says, thank you for sharing your knowledge. I've learned important things today in comprehending my outer defects and vices. Um, you're welcome, Benjamin. We're, we're, we're glad to hear it. We hope, we hope you can apply um, what we shared with you. Okay. Depression. Depression, metaphysically, and we hope this can help you get to the bottom of it, because depression is very, very, it's easy to diagnose on the surface, right? It's, it's, it's relative, you know when you're depressed, because as you said, as you said, you become an expert in not being able to do anything. We know we've suffered from depression for a very, very, very long time. And the principal symptom of depression is the, is the lack of energy, but the, the, the lack of motivation, 
the lack of, you might have the desire, you might have the longing to do something. Like, you might be able to muster the intellectual cognizant, yeah, I got to do something, or I have so much to do, or I have this, that, but you can't, you can't muster the energy to put behind any kind of willpower. Just feel tired all the time. And tired is not an accurate description. You feel drained. Drained. Something is draining you. That something is anger. It's rage. And it is raging in the subconscious. And because it's in the subconscious, you don't know that it's raging. You don't have access to that. But what you do have access to is the malaise, the radiation. Here's something, if there's a takeaway from today's lecture, it is that energy must flow. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Okay, that's important. We always talk about egos consuming our energy. Well, they do consume our energy, and they, can do, they do bottle up our consciousness, but the energy that they consume, the energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed from one thing to another thing. So what is it transformed into? It's transformed into ego poop. Yes, egos poop. Bet you never thought of this before. Bet you never thought of it this way. We take in energy and we poop. And guess what? Our poop is food for other beings. Our poop is food for plants and food for bacteria and food for... Other things love our, love our poop. Flies can't get enough of our poop. It's transformation of energy. Transformation of matter. Transformation of life. Egos take our sexual energy. They consume it. They invert it. And they poop. Now, it's easy, right? You, you, you know this. When someone's raging at you, they're throwing all this anger, this energy, this, this negative, these negative vibes, these bad vibes. But that's on the surface. That's outward. It's conscious. It's, it's, it's out there. It's easy to spot. It's easy to feel. But twice today, we talked specifically about when energies are consumed by egos, but they're directed internally into, in the subconscious. And twice we described this radiation which seeps out, which leaks out. And it's this, it's this void, it's this like absent, it's, a, it's negative energy. And into that negative energy, all the positive energy flows. Remember, being and not being. Not being is not 
not being. It's it's a type of energy, but it's a void energy. It voids positive energy. That's what the void is. Depression, then, it's the same phenomenon. It's an internalized, introverted, subconscious sort of rage. But rage, anger, we know this from our own experience, anger takes a lot of energy. Sucks a lot of energy out of us. And after after we rage, we feel spent like more than an orgasm. We take our anger out on someone or we yell and scream or we go and we beat the hell out of a pillow or beat the hell out of a heavy bag in the gym and we just take out all our anger and everything and afterwards we're like exhausted we're just spent but depression is like that but it's like like laziness and that it's like slow motion rage in the subconscious mind and it just sucks the energy out of us and what it's and what and what we're left with in its place is anger's poop that that stewing that malaise that melancholy which is just this radioactive field of of life suck and it just sucks the life out of us drains us from within So we have what people call sadness. And we have that dominant symptom, that inability to muster up any energy because depression, the word itself, to be pushed in, to be depressed, but what it really means is being undermined, being mined from beneath. And having our, our foundation scooped out from underneath it. And that's what causes a depression. The depression is just on the surface. But what causes a depression is weakness beneath the surface. A hollowing out beneath the surface. That is what leads to depression. And as Azil says, certainly as I've observed it in dreams, well, in the physical. Now, aha, but here's the rub. In our case, which we suffer from depression a lot, but we know, we know that our demon is fear. And we know from Star Wars, from The Empire Strikes Back, from Master Yoda, fear leads to anger. And as we discussed today, it is because the attachment to the attachment to outcomes, the attachment to dominance and control, the identification and the desire to control and dominate circumstances in our life when they don't go our way, that is what makes us angry. Anger is always related to that. When we can't get what we want, when things don't go our way, we become angry, we become frustrated. What? 
have you to be frustrated about? What have you to be angry about? The dep depression doesn't ask you that question. Depression asks you, what, what, are, uh, what have you to be sad about? Why are you sad? Why are you so sad? What's making you so sad? And we would say, what's making you so angry? Specifically, what are you so afraid of? What are you trying to control? What do you want to have happen or not have happen because of an attachment to an outcome that you desire for your own comfort and security or that you fear and you want to avoid? What is or is not happening, which is or is not satisfying, well, specifically, what is not satisfying either, the, either of those two conditions, getting what you want or avoiding what you don't want. And you'll begin to get closer to the cause of your depression, the what's behind the anger, which is draining you of your will to live and your will to be. Because that's another way you can describe depression, right? Not being. Depression is unwanted laziness. It's forced laziness on the surface. And it's, it's a feeling of helplessness and uselessness which we know very, very well. So, these, these are now clues for you to go and meditate on. The things that are happening or not happening in your life. And in the past, we, we, it's, we seem to recall a live stream that we did that was entitled waiting in the dark and uh, waiting in the dark and it was pardon us while we burp up a storm here um, let's see here let's see if we can scroll down and find it together the 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 poster is the poster here it is okay okay this is this is it so season one episode 28 and um we can't guarantee this but we have a feeling we have a sense that during this live stream we were talking about being lost in the, in the desert and waiting in the desert. And we also probably shared um, being depressed and, um, and that not being able to do anything, we, we started becoming angry or, or depressed by not being able to do anything. So 
In other words, it was a downward spiral. It's a self-feedback loop. Um, you know, if it, it, it would have been handy if we had, if we had people to, uh, to, uh, to go through these or, or to mark down the times when we were talking about certain topics, like, like in a journal, then we could add in timestamps and, and, and whatnot. We can't do that, which that's too much for us to do to, to keep notes of, of what is coming to us and what we're sharing with you in real time while we're sharing it. And we really, really don't have the time to go back and spend three hours listening to re-listen and, and jot down notes and do all this timestamps. That's why most YouTubers have what they call wrenches. They have volunteers and stuff to help them do this kind of thing. But um, so it's possible that in this lecture, you will find that. Um, the other lecture, there's another lecture that um, comes to mind um, related to how to endure suffering. And um, there are a number of different lectures. We know that we talked about the lighthouse analogy and being in the storm. And um, in any case, we've, we know that we've used our own experience with depression to inform um, our work here in the past. Yeah, so I, I hope I hope it's fruitful for you, but to be sure, as you are observing what it is that 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 you're frustrated about, uh, that's happening or not happening, that that might be the cause of your anger, the disappointment that's raging in the subconscious, which is causing the depression. This comment you made about becoming an expert in. Um, and becoming an expert of not being able to do anything, this is an aspect of the downward spiral of depression. When you become not just cognizant and self-aware of the fact that you're not able to do anything, but it's almost as if it's being rubbed in your face and you, and you start obsessing over it. You can't, you can't stop worrying and beating yourself up over the fact that you're 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 such a useless nothing to to nobody right now. You're completely useless. You're helpless and hopeless and hapless. And it starts wearing on your nerves, and it starts this negative feedback loop starts happening. And this is a clever way that the egos of fear and anger, uh, or indeed lust. Because lots of people can fall into depression out of sexual frustration. So, in our article on the many faces of fear, we talk about fear being the great chameleon. And now, after today, you know that fear and lust are intimately intertwined. They are husband and wife. So, it can also be that something as simple as doing pranayama can help. <clears throat> taking a walk in the sun, taking a walk in nature, there's uh, listening to beautiful music, listening to music that speaks to your soul. There's, there's lots of things that can help um, 
But if, if you're preserving the sexual force and you're not spilling it and your lust wants you to spill it, <clears throat> your lust can be raging. Your lust can, through her partner, through her husband, fear. And the desire for outcomes that 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 uh, uh, they can cause depression. And it might just be practicing uh, some pranayama and practicing the uh, maithuna, the um, the sixth rite of the uh, uh, Tibetan, the rites of rejuvenation. Uh, that might be enough. Or doing some exercise or just, you know, burning off some of that excess energy and, and quelching that that fear and frustration in the subconscious mind. But as Azil says, yeah, it's not even sadness and feeling helpless. It's basically just not being, as you said. Yeah, so depression is like a forced laziness. And and it's and it's because the egos, particularly, uh, well, again, it's you know lust and fear. It's whatever is behind your frustration, but but now they're raging. They're like having a party in your subconscious mind. It's like a rave. And and hey, that's they need energy to have a good time, and they're having a good they're they're having a good time. They're having an orgy at your your expense, and they're sucking all the life out of you from the surface, and that's what causes that depression, and that's how you feel, and we know that. We know exactly what that's like, and we know that it can, in our case, sometimes it would drag on for, for months. Sometimes it would just be for weeks. Sometimes it would just be for days. But we had ex we had periods where we were depressed literally for months, and we got so... Now, the key to it of all, of course, is to not give in to the, those feelings of helplessness and everything else. The key is to just observe it, is to allow it, is to sit with it. Because believe it or not, sooner or later, the, uh, the egos will get tired and they will have to sleep. They will, have to, they, will, they will take a rest as well. It might take a long, long time, but in the meantime, what's key is to allow it, not fight it necessarily, if you can do things that uplift you here and there and 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 surround yourself with nature and beautiful things and so on and so forth, then you know more power to you. But don't try to resist it and don't try to become obsessed about it because that's just feeding more energy to it. Um, you just want to observe it and just try to have try to be indifferent of it. We we have the um, which we've discussed. Also in uh, live streams, um, the uh, the lighthouse analogy. And that's the analogy where we observe ourselves as a uh, as a boat in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a tempest. and that um, you know we have the option of feeling ourselves, uh, lost and part of and and lost in the storm, or we can observe that that vessel is going through that that tumultuous experience. But we, the observer, are, are in the lighthouse, and it is precisely our observation from the lighthouse 
which will guide the ship into shore past the dangerous rocks and will and will spare it from being broken up on the rocks um and when we can observe that and that's it's a very useful uh analogy uh to remember that you are you, not to identify with the depression you say i feel depressed i feel depressed i'm not not i am depressed i feel depressed and as Azil says, yes, I'm observing it. But the question that you posed of what it is we want, not want, was something that I haven't reflected upon yet in depth. Well then, you have your homework. You have a way forward. So, would anybody else like to share or ask a question or have anything else to contribute? We are... All years now, we, 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 yeah, well, boy, there's so much more we could share, but uh, that's we won't, we're not, uh, we won't do that. Some things are be between souls, as it were, but uh, let's put it this way. A bodhisattva is here to help liberate souls who are trapped in hell. And at the latter end of this week, we received cries for help from two different women on two different sides of the world who were who are going through a, a living hell. And each each are battling. I mean, literally, their own demons, literally. And while it's, it, it may be a fascinating case study. Um, it's too soon, and for us right now, it just feels too much like gossip. That's just, that's the God honest truth. It just feels too much like gossip. But rest assured, if we're successful in helping these individuals free themselves from the hell that they are in then at some point in the future we will ask their permission to be able to tell their story in an anonymous way and then and then we will share with you the hell that they were in and how their demon had enslaved them and what it took them to free themselves from the better part of that enslavement because it's a process right it's not all at once you know, liberated for all time. It's 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 step by step by step. So, uh, Dharmakaya says, "Give thanks for all of this valuable information to help us in our work of self-discovery." Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome, Dharmakaya. It's our it's our honor and our privilege. Would anybody else like to ask a question or say anything? Mugabu says about having expectations. 
shouldn't we have expectations? Let's say, for example, a bodybuilder, they go to the gym almost every day for years, eat a special diet. They expect something from their work. Yes. They hope to achieve something with their work. An expectation is not just a hope. An expectation is a demand. An expectation is, you, is, is, a, is an entitlement. If I do this, I expect to get big. I expect a return on, in my, on my investment. I want a return on my investment. And I want it to be this way and this way and this way and this way. That is an attachment to an outcome. But if you exercise... You, you, you say, I'm, I'm doing good things for my body. And sure, I hope it'll, it'll improve my physique. I hope it'll, you know, get rid of, help me get rid of some of this flab that I'm not too proud of or what have you. It's very subtle because we have been all brought up and conditioned to be in a world where expectations are glorified and, and they're worshipped. Expectation is a good thing. Here you are, here you are yourself. You're saying, well, isn't that a good thing? Isn't it good to expect or want good things to come from your from the work? Yeah, it's subtle, but you see the difference. Once you get the flavor of it, once you get the flavor of it, it may be as subtle as the glass is half empty and the glass is half full, but you know how big a difference that makes. Going to your guests, sorry, going to your family or you to your in-laws' house on a holiday. You walk in the door. You reasonably, you can reasonably uh, expect or believe or hope that they're going to treat you with hospitality. They're going to give you uh, refreshing things to drink and delicious things to eat. But if you go into that house expecting hospitality and expecting their best wine and their best food and their best uh, service, how, what kind of energy do you think you're going to be giving off? And how friendly and amicable a time and how good a time are you going to have? Right? It's when we can, if we use our imagination and put it into practical application, that we get a sense of that. Say, yeah, if I go in and I'm expecting this, that, and the other thing, when I don't get it, I'm going to be upset. And I'm going to be looking at them like, what the hell is this? Cheese and crackers? You call this hospitality? You call this service? I expected your best wine. You gave me ginger ale without any, with, you didn't even put any ice in it. Pfft. You see, 
it doesn't take it doesn't take much imagination to put yourself in that position into that into that role like an actor might and very quickly you realize oh so that's how i become an asshole that's how i become a bad guest that's how food critics are like and those food snobs and you know people like this they're never happy they're never happy. It doesn't matter what you do for them. It doesn't matter how you bend over backwards or what you do. They can never be satisfied because their expectations are, are, are past the moon. They expect so much. They expect everything that nothing is ever good enough. Now, that's an extreme, but you know people like that. You know people like that. And it's just a question of degree. So having expectations, it's so innocent. It's so innocent, right? What's wrong with that? The mind says, well, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that, except that there's everything wrong with that. Because little expectations tend to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And before we know it, we're one of those people that everywhere we go, we expect everything from everybody. And when nobody can live up to our expectations, we walk around blaming everyone and everything. Oh, what the, what, what the hell has the world uh, gone to hell in a handbasket? Nobody, no, no, does anything anymore. Blah, 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 blah. Right? And you know people like this. You know people like this. Yes, as as you know, there's, yes, pride and fear. Yeah, that narcissism, right? The world revolves around you and your expectations. Your expectations are nothing but the desire to control your, your attachment to outcomes. Um, and as Azil says, lust for fame and power is what empowered my depression for sure, at least in part. Mystical pride, in a sense. Lust for fame and power. Well, that sounds like there's a personal story involved. Um, so something has to do with the fact that fame and power has been denied to you, and you are depressed about it. You are angry about it. In other words, more accurately, you're angry about it. You're frustrated that fame and power and perhaps the uh, mystic pride. So maybe the fame and power has to do with uh, some kind of a spiritual path or journey or some sort of st status. And, um, and having the object of our mystic pride denied us uh, can definitely be a source of uh, frustration and anger and it can be fear driven uh, we'll give you an example that we've told we've shared this before we only had enough astral experiences as we needed to have and then our astral body was taken away from us we are not allowed we're not permitted it doesn't matter what we do uh we know all the techniques we use the techniques in the past and then we had the experiences we had to we needed to experience and then boom it's denied denied me i i, I don't have my astral solar astral body i can't astral project it doesn't matter what technique or mantra or what i do or how hard i do it it's not going to happen now here i am doing what i'm doing teaching what I'm teaching, uh, you know, walking the path of the Bodhisattva, and, and, and I, I can't even, 
I can't even astral project. I can't even project into the astral plane. We're channeling truths from the seventh dimension, from absolute, but we can't awaken in the astral plane. Try to imagine what kind of a uh, effect that has on a mortal uh, being, a mortal person. Along the lines of, uh, you know, fame and, and power and, uh, you know, a denial of dominance, control and fame. Yeah. yeah. How about having uh, live streams like this and having on average seven people watching? Or, you know, having our YouTube channel and our blogs and the things that we write and things we do and having you know, 566 followers when other people have millions who either they're black magicians or they talk total nonsense right and here we are doing our best to speak the truth and give the truth teachings and we have you know seven people on a live stream and 500 people following us and a few and you know This is the path. The what we are sharing with you. And you know, there's on these live streams, um it, acceptance, surrender is the freedom and liberation from. Uh, mystic pride. In other words, humility. Humility. To be humiliated and accept that humiliation is what we need. And what's raging inside of us is precisely that which must die. Because if that gets a hold of the energy and the fame, the control and the dominance, uh, it, we've talked about this before. We shared our experience in Japan when we were shown the line that separates Christ from Antichrist is a hairline. There is nothing more dangerous in this world than a fallen bodhisattva. There is nothing more dangerous in this world than someone who is on the path of the bodhisattva and slips and falls. To be on the path of the bodhisattva and not be the subject and object of abject humiliation to be beaten down to the ground until we are on our knees in complete and total surrender to whatever may come even if nothing comes especially if nothing comes. And that's what waiting in the dark 
is about. And as Azil, we know roughly well. We know you're you, we know that you're younger than us. And so we know that in that in that uh, video we talk about the forty years of the, in the desert, and we talk about the seven t- the the how our lives are separated by years of seven, and that uh, we only we only begin to be prepared for our life's work at the age of forty two, give or take, in the early forties, and we only begin that work when we reach forty nine, seven times seven, give or take. So patience, patience. And as Azza says, yeah, because they can get away with horrendous things undetected like certain killers in history. Um, Bodhisattva have the potential, depending on their level, the level they attain, the level that, or the level they are at when they reincarnated. Um, when we say they have the potential to be a Christ or an Antichrist, we have to try to comprehend what that means. Adolf Hitler. was a candidate to be the avatar of Aquarius. He was turned. Look what he wrought on the world. Imagine what he might have accomplished had he not been turned. Had he not fallen? And look at what he did, what he wrought on the world. Because he was fallen. Because he did fall. This was not expressed to us in any intellectual way, shape, or form. This was shown to us. We, we've shared the story, but if you want to hear it again, we have a written testimony of it. And all of our uh, bookmarks have all been rearranged for some bizarre reason. Don't know why that happens when Google Chrome updates. It decides to put all of our bookmarks, which were all nicely in uh, uh, chronological order, they're now all completely screwed up. So now we have to try to find this article the old-fashioned way, which is it's here somewhere. There it is. So we have this... Um, 
it's a, it's a, you might, you, you might be surprised that it's this article of all articles that we talk about our experience of uh, being shown. There's the link. It's in the, ch it's in the chat as well. Um, but it will become clear if you read the article where it's, um, The subtitle, the subheading is, no, the subheading is this one. Gaming is a means to mystical experience. Um, so you can just scroll down, start reading from, from this heading, and it'll become self-evident. So it, it'll become self-explanatory but in this section we talk about an experience that we had in japan and um and we were shown and when we say we were shown the proof was in our hands the evidence we were indicted we were indicted in the court of our own consciousness in the court of the christ the being of our being indicted us and we held in our hand the evidence of that indictment the smoking gun was in our hand and the lords of karma proclaimed like we were in a metaphysical minority report and if you've ever seen that movie you know that they, there's this phenomena called pre-crime. Is it? It's based on a book by Philip K. Dick, if if uh, we're not mistaken, the the same author who wrote uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," which is the basis of Blade Runner. We 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 think we have that right. In any case, the movie was with Tom Cruise and. Um, and the other actor whose name uh, eludes me, but Tom Cruise was the headlining actor. And um, it's all about these, these clairvoyant uh, uh, oracles that are able to see crimes before they happen. So, so people are arrested and, um, and taken off the street before, before they can commit their crimes. So I was in a metaphysical, spiritual version of that. And I was being indicted, and in my hand was a smoking gun. And what was I being indicted for? For being the next Hitler on this planet. And this was not an intellectual thing. I had the smoking gun in my hand. The proof... And I completely collapsed. I imploded. The 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 realization of that, the comprehend, the realization of just what I am capable of. Was enough to. set me on a path of 
self-denial and surrender to Christ. And even then, and I was only 25 years old, and it would take another 10 years before I took the next step of that surrender. But that first, that critical step of surrender, the first critical step of surrender like that I did, I was five. The next 15, the next 25, and the next 35. And the next after that, 45. And in each one of those steps, there was a terrifying precipice and a, and a, and a little death. As Azil says, like a fog that covers the world in which things take place out of vision for others. We're not sure exactly what you're referring to there. But... Um, But if you mean whether things that are good or bad, the influence, the sphere of influence, <clears throat> a bodhisattva's sphere of influence is planetary. As bodhisattva lift souls out of hell, the ripple effect uh, extends to the planet and that ripple effect ripples through time through space it says take the concentration camps for example when were they discovered after the war uh, a, much was known much was known much was known during but uh, nothing could be done about it. If those things hadn't been known as they were, I mean, and they knew, I mean, and then there were other facets of that, like, for example, IBM, which, which you know, and there were other corporations which sold to the Nazis. And they knew what, IBM knew what its punch card system was being used for. So, um, war is big business. Suffice it to say that the influence, that fog that you're describing, okay, it can be, it can be a perfume, or it can be poison gas. But the sphere of influence of a bodhisattva is planetary; it's worldwide. And if that bodhisattva falls, then that fog of beauty and truth and light and love that would perfume the whole world becomes a toxic gas and it chokes and it poisons the entire world. And those really are the only two options. Unless through some miraculous turn, uh, the White Lodge is able to nullify their impact and they and they 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 vanish into relative obscurity, or 
through some act of Black Lodge envy and sabotage and envy, um, uh, you know, that, that they get assassinated or something to that effect. I mean, there are ways to mitigate disaster at times, but then there are other times when it just... Beware this, beware this mystic pride, beware this desire that why isn't it, why isn't it already, why isn't it already happening, why am I not already doing it, or why can't I already do it? Uh, a bodhisattva doesn't crawl before he walks, before he runs. A bodhisattva runs before he walks, before he crawls before he kneels and he prostates and he throws himself at the mercy of his divine mother and begs and pleads before any exaltation comes a great humiliation Zazil says, crap. <laughs> yeah, real bummer, huh? <laughs> Look, you know, uh, it's a real shame that the Bible was edited the way it was and that all of Jesus's miracles and all the, his, his, his deepest teachings and stuff that are attributed to him prior to being crucified. All of that happened after he re resurrected from the dead, when he was the living Christ. So, Let's put whatever suffering that we're experiencing into some context and into some perspective. Doesn't matter what we're going through, right? We haven't been crucified yet. And if there is something of that nature in our future, then be happy that you are being prepared for it. That whatever it is that you're dealing with, coping with, facing right now, that is so disturbing and upsetting and disappointing, it's what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But the path of the Bodhisattva is suffering and sacrifice. And and our Divine Mother orchestrates that and chooses that for us. We don't get to choose that. We don't get to choose. No one, no one gets to choose how they die. Our choice is how we face that death.
And thank God we have the mercy and severity of our Divine Mother to prepare us for that through all these little deaths, all these little letting goes, and slowly cycle this, like paring us away, like carving us, like chipping away the marble and allowing that perfect David that's inside that block of crude, hewn rock to, to emerge. But it's a process. Chip away, chip away, chip away. Magabu says, I had a vision lately. I was handcuffed and my Holy Mother uncuffed me. I came to understand that for a reason, for years I was locked up. Earth is like a prison. The soul has to do the same. A beautiful, beautiful vision, beautiful dream. And bodhisattvas have done horrible things and also many great things. It's true. Fallen bodhisattvas, the higher they are, the faller they fall. The, the, every demon was once a master, was once an angel. And this is the, the great game, the great struggle, the great challenge, and the test and the ordeal that we all face. And this is why the battle is within, the battle is with our own egos, our own demons, because every single one of them wants to sit upon the iron throne and wants to rule Westeros. Never forget that. So if you watch Game of Thrones and you watch the scheming and the conniving and the backstabbing and the plotting and all of that stuff, you just remember the Game of Thrones is inside of you. The Game of Thrones is our own psychology. And yeah, desire lust and and fear craving and aversion to dominate and control to rule to rule and exploit Any other comments or questions? We're at the four-hour mark, so we think it's probably as good a time as any to say uh, goodbye, and we will um, <clears throat> hopefully see you all again next week. Uh, until then, all the best. Take care, and um, inverential peace. <laughs>